We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be talking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you are a savior. And we recognize here that we're sinners, that we make mistakes. We're not perfect, Lord. We do things that just aren't happening. But we're so thankful that you're a merciful God, that you're a kind God. You're a God that is willing and wanting to save. You desire that none would perish, but all would come to the knowledge of everlasting life. You were so zealous about this that you sent your only son. God manifests in the flesh to communicate to us your heart and your love and your will and to accomplish for us salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is wonderful. And we just pray that this Christmas time, that message would become so potent in our lives. For those of us that are already Christians, it would just become more living and active, that gospel message in our lives. The incarnation of Jesus Christ would just become very real. We ask that, Lord, you would increase in our lives and we would decrease. To be sure, there's a huge degree of selfishness in this room, starting with me. But Lord, we'd like to be a little less like that and a little more like you. A giver. A self-sacrificial giver who draped himself in humanity to save wretches like us. It's glorious. And Lord, for those that don't know you, they haven't entered into that personal relationship. They haven't been born again. They haven't repented of their sins. We pray that this Christmas season, they would receive the greatest gift the world ever knew. Cleansing from sin and guilt and shame and condemnation. Don't let anybody miss that gift this year, Lord. And so as we dive into your word right now, we ask the Holy Spirit, you dive into our hearts and you do a work there. Purge out what ought not to be there. Build in what you would have there. Open up our hearts and our minds and our spirits and our understanding to see you more fully, Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, this week at home, Christmas Eve, tomorrow night perhaps, you guys will be reading the Christmas story together, I'm sure. Matthew 1 and 2, or perhaps Luke 1 and 2, whichever you prefer. You got a little more time, read them both. Maybe the Matthew account on Christmas Eve, the Luke account on Christmas morning, perhaps. But we're all familiar with those accounts. Even those of us that aren't that familiar with the Bible or aren't even Christians, we've, we've heard some of the basics of the Christmas story. I have a little excerpt here from when the angel announced to the shepherd, to the shepherds, plural, And the angel said, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. A familiar passage, but I want to highlight two facets of that passage this morning. Number one, the phrase, a savior. And number two, the phrase, a manger. We have set before us here in the word of God today, a savior and a manger. Now, the fact that he is a savior, Jesus, in case you didn't know who we were talking about. The fact that he is a savior means that he is God. You understand that theologically? Because God said in the book of Isaiah that he is the only savior. 
Isaiah 42 verse 11, the Lord says, I, even I, am the Lord and there is no Savior besides me. So when the Bible asserts that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and the Bible certainly says that, and when Jesus himself contended for that fact, it was a clear claim to deity. The fact that a Savior was born, the fact that he is a Savior means that he is God. The Lord alone is the Savior, and yet we see very clearly that Jesus is called Savior. We just read it, and then again in Matthew one twenty one, And Mary shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Luke 2.11, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then Titus 2.13 puts the concept of God and Savior together in the person of Christ. It says that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So the fact that He is Savior means that He is God. Amen? But the fact that Jesus was in a manger means that He is man. A savior in a manger. The fact that he is a savior means he's God. But the fact that he laid in a manger, and you understand what a manger is, don't you? It's a feeding trough. It's where the animals ate. It was an unclean, filthy place. Nobody would lay their child in that place unless they absolutely had to. You remember, there was no room for him in the inn. And so it is in many people's hearts today, unfortunately. Just no room for Jesus. Even at Christmas time, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, but so often there's no room for him in the end. And so Jesus was laid in a manger. And the fact that he was in a manger means that he is a man. And the coming together of the two, Jesus being both God and man, is called the incarnation. The incarnation. Jesus is God incarnate. In the flesh. Now this is spoken about in Philippians chapter 2. I want us to start reading in verse 1 just to get a little context. But we'll narrow in on verses uh, 5 and beyond. Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ... If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, Paul the Apostle here is making a heartfelt plea for unity within the church in Philippi. Now, brothers and sisters, that has nothing to do with the subject of the Incarnation directly today, but may I digress for a moment. Paul the Apostle is making a heartfelt plea for unity. If there's any encouragement, if there's any love, if there's any fellowship, if there's any affection or compassion... Make my joy complete, the apostle says, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, let me say this, church. As we grow, as we mature together, we're going to have to fight for our unity. Because Satan is fighting to bring division. in the church worldwide, in the churches, in the community, but I'm more directly concerned with this church here. Satan is fighting 24-7 to divide us. 
Now, now he's so good at what he does. I don't want to give him too much credit, but he's been around a while. He's good at what he does. And it's interesting that the things that he uses to divide people are the piddly little things in life. Just the piddly little persnickety things that we get all hung up on. And you know when these things really manifest themselves? Christmas. Don't they? All the attitudes, all the selfishness, all the underlying brooding family drama, it all manifests itself at Christmas time, doesn't it? And I'll tell you what it does. It plays right into the hands of the devil. Because the devil wants us divided and disassociated and broken up on every level. And because of what we have made Christmas to be, as fun as it is, I love presents like the next guy, maybe more. (laughs) But because of what we have made Christmas to be, it really does pander to the flesh. It really does get that old flesh going. And boy, once you start that old baby up, she likes to run, doesn't she? And she likes to run with the devil. And Paul here is making a heartfelt plea for unity. And if we're going to stay together, church, we're going to have to fight. Just like you've got to fight for your family. Moms, can I get an amen? amen? You know what it is to fight for the family in your prayer closet when your husband's being a bonehead. <laughs> Fathers, can I get an amen when the kids are going nutso and you're fighting for your family? You've got to fight to keep the family together. Where We are also a family. We're going to have to fight to keep it together, church. We're going to have to get over the piddly little snotty things. We're going to have to let love cover a multitude of sins because we are going to sin against each other in a multitude of ways. I'm going to sin against you. You're going to sin against me. And we're going to have to let love cover a multitude of sins. Now, Paul is is begging for that. And then he gives a little instruction here in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. Don't do anything with a motive of selfishness. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Better to give than to receive. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others as well. Man, this is a wonderful season, a wonderful time, a wonderful opportunity to begin to practice that. Looking out for the concerns of others. Esteeming others is more important than ourselves. You've got to be purposeful about it. It's a very spiritual thing. That's as spiritual as it gets. People think spirituality is all hocus pocus and this and that and the other. I'll tell you what, it's nitty gritty practical. It's loving when it's hard to love. It's surrendering when you don't want to. It's compromising when you need to. It's taking the humble place when it benefits somebody else to your own expense. That's true spirituality. How do I know? Because that's what the Bible says here in the next verse, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now that is the definitive attitude of Christ Jesus in the incarnation. Now we bring it back around. That is the definitive attitude of Jesus Christ in the incarnation was utter selflessness. That God would drape himself in humanity. That he would condescend to such a thing. That he would acquiesce to such an idea. That the God of the universe who made all things... 
has existed forever, who is Lord over all things, that he would drape himself in humanity. It is more dramatic. It is more unthinkable. It is more outlandish than you and I becoming slugs and doing so by choice out of an intense love for the slug. You so love the slug that you drape yourself in slugginess. In a very real way, that's what God did. And it is the utter and ultimate expression of selflessness. And we who call ourselves by his name, Christ, Christians, Christians, we who call himself by our names ought to endeavor prayerfully, heroically, to have the same attitude in ourselves that was in Christ Jesus. Now look here as we get to the doctrine of the incarnation, verse 6. Speaking of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, that's right, second member of the Trinity, member of the Godhead forever, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or, or as another translation says, I think a little more clearly, Though he was God, he did not demand or cling to his rights as God. Verse 7, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, the incarnation, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As if it weren't enough that Jesus Christ draped himself in humanity, was born of a woman, a virgin, and was laid in a manger. As if that weren't humbling enough for the God of the universe, he then subjected himself to the whips of men, the mocking of men, the spittle of men, and the beatings of men. And then the cross. And he did it all for love. We see here pictured the incarnation. Jesus, the Son of God, existing as a second person of the triune God, united his divine nature to a human nature, and through it came into the world. Meaning that he did not stop being God when he added humanity to himself. Who exactly was in the manger that day? God himself draped in humanity. But the two natures coming together. The divine nature, God, and a human nature. As one early church father said, in the incarnation there was no subtraction of deity, but an addition of humanity. You understand that that Jesus wasn't part God and part man. That's heresy. That's incorrect. He was fully God and fully man. There was no subtraction of deity, merely an addition of humanity when he laid in the manger. But it does say here in verse 7 of Philippians 2 that he emptied himself. So if Christ's emptying involved taking on a complete human nature, of what did he empty himself? I have a quote here from one theologian. He says, while maintaining his divine nature, he gave up the full and constant exercise of his divine powers and the continual display of the glory that are his as God. That is, he ceded the privileges of being God without relinquishing the position of being God. 
Now, that's a correct understanding. Some of the prerogatives at times he relinquished. Some of the privileges at times. Some of the continual display of glory. Because the angels now. Have you ever noticed how gnarly the angels are? Whenever somebody in the Bible sees an angel, they trip out, they freak out, they fall down like dead people. They're they're in a full panic because these beings are so gnarly. But when these beings are in the presence of God, they cover their eyes, they cover their feet, and they never stop singing praises to Him. You see, the church is so messed up. I'm including myself. I'm a member of the church. The church is so messed up because the worship leader has to almost just, just, just use cattle prods to get us singing praises to the Lord. It's just an absolute declaration of how utterly selfish we are. Because when the angels, who are gnarly, gnarly, gnarly beings, when the angels see God on his throne in the heavenlies, it says in the Bible that they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They never stop. 24 7, 365 for eternity. But the church says, Don't make us sing too long. Now, I don't, I don't want to condemn anybody, including myself, because it's Christmas time. But it's important to realize that we are real messed up because we're real into ourselves. And Christmas time cultivates it. And I'm as guilty as anybody. And what the Word of God is calling us to is to come back. Come back to who we're supposed to be in Christ. Have this very attitude that He Himself had. Now, He draped Himself in humanity. And what we need to realize is that humanity was true and real. It was not contrived. It was not partial humanity. It was not watered down humanity. It was true and real. Jesus had a body just like our bodies. That's how amazing the incarnation is. I mean, God went all the way to communicate his love to you and I. He had a body just like we have bodies. Jesus became tired. We read about that in John 4, 6. He was subject to all the limitations of a human body. Jesus became tired. How humiliating for God, who just spoke everything into his existence. Let there be light, and there was light. Jesus became thirsty, John 19, 28. On the cross, he said, I thirst. He became hungry, Matthew 4, 2. At times, Jesus was physically weak. He had to be ministered to by angels after he fasted for 40 days. He could not carry his own cross to Calvary. And the ultimate proof that he had a real human nature like you and I is he died upon the cross. (laughs) God cannot die. He had a real human nature. He had a human body just like ours, and he also had a human mind. It says in Luke 5, 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom. We don't fully understand this, but God incarnate in the manger did learn things in his humanity. He increased in wisdom, which means that he went through a normal learning process like all other children. He learned how to eat, how to talk, how to read, how to write, how humiliating for God. He's still fully God, but he emptied himself. He he laid aside some of the privileges of being God. And he subjected himself to the reality of humanity. And he did it for love. How humiliating. God in the flesh was being taught how to walk. 
how to eat little crushed up pomegranates dipping down his chin. It's unbelievable. It says in Hebrews 5.8 that he learned obedience. Now be very careful. He learned obedience, and yet we know that Jesus Christ was absolutely sinless. Otherwise, he could not be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. What does it mean when it says he learned obedience? It doesn't mean he learned by failure like you and I did. It means that as he grew in wisdom and stature, he was entrusted with more things by his earthly parents and by his heavenly father. He learned obedience. He learned to be obedient to the, father, the will of the father. Don't tell me that wasn't difficult. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus prayed three times, if there is any other way to save humanity, Father, let's do that. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. He learned obedience, not through failure like we learn it, but through simply obeying as the Father revealed his will to him. I do only that which the Father reveals to me, he said. And there were some things that he simply didn't know in his humanity. In Mark 13, he said, I don't know the time of my coming. Speaking of the second coming, only the Father knows. And yet other times, he knew the hearts of men and he knew what they were thinking. So we see an interaction between the divine nature and the human nature. Jesus in his humanity, his humanity was real. Jesus in his humanity was tempted. That means that he was fully man because if he was just fully God, James 1.13 tells us that God cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot be tempted But in his humanity, he was tempted, and yet he was without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Let me pause right there before I get to the main point of that. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who sympathizes with our weakness. We need to remember that. that. That he is compassionate toward us when we are weak, when we are failing, when we're having a difficult time. When we're struggling, our God is compassionate toward us. It says that He deals with us as with children. Psalm 103. He knows that we are just dirt. And so He has compassion on us. Think about when you taught your firstborn to ride a bike. You didn't just throw him on the bike and push him down the hill, watch him fall, and say, What is wrong with you? What are you doing? You idiot. If you did that, please schedule an appointment with me. <laughs> no, you were compassionate when that, ch- when that child struggled. You were compassionate when that child was afraid. You held on when that child said, hold on. Until in your wisdom, you as a father knew it was the right time to let go. And you did not let go so that that child could fall. You let go so that that child could succeed. And the Father will hold your hand because you are His child and He is compassionate and merciful toward you. And He sympathizes with our weakness and our fear. And so He knows how to minister to us and He meets us in those needs. He's not ashamed of us in those moments. He doesn't tell you to be strong in and of yourselves. He says, be strong in His might. He doesn't simply say to you, hey, don't be afraid, buck up, soldier. The Bible says that his perfect love casts out fear. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, in his humanity, tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. So understand, and there's a point to this, 
Jesus' humanity was true and real. The portrait of the incarnate Christ is clear. As it says in Colossians 2.9, For in Christ the fullness of God lives in human body. Jesus was not a deified man, neither was he a humanized God. He is fully God and fully man. And in taking on human nature, it didn't involve a mixing of divine attributes with humanity, nor converting one nature to the other. Separate, distinct, yet both functioning. It's difficult to understand. It's the incarnation. It's not supposed to be simple. Now that we understand to a certain degree what the incarnation is, Jesus draped in humanity, laid in a manger. Then we begin to ask ourselves, why? I mean, really why? Why did God become incarnate? Why did God have to become a man? Why did he do that? Why is it important? Well, to answer that question, we first have to understand that the reason that God is the Savior, remember, we said that he's a Savior. The reason that God is the Savior is because he loves us. You see, God was not obligated to save us from the power and penalty of sin. When the angels rebelled and a third of them went with Lucifer, God gave them no offer of redemption. God gave them no room to repent. God gave them no chance. Rather, he confined them to pits of darkness. Their fate is sealed. When any creature rebels against God, God is unobligated, not obligated to do anything about it. But because God is love and he created you and I to be loved, he's chosen to save us. Now, he didn't create the angels to be loved. The angels were made to work. You were made to be loved. Isn't that good? You were created, formed, brought into existence to be loved. And because that was God's purpose for you, He chose, wasn't obligated, He chose to save you and I. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, sin is that which separates us from experiencing the love of God. We were made to be loved. You were created to be an object of love. But sin separates us from experiencing that love. I have a quote about the thrust of this in Scripture. It says from one author here, Though there are many themes that run through the Hebrew Scriptures, there's one motif that is consistent and persistent. The passionate and aching desire for deliverance. The cry of the heart toward God from whom the people feel alienated. And what Jesus demonstrates throughout his life and ministry is that this wild desire of his ancestors, this hope against all hope, this intimate union of God and humanity is an accomplished fact, something which can be seen and heard and touched. You see, God heard the cry of humanity. And God saw that humanity was alienated and that was unacceptable to God because of his love. And so he chose to 
drape himself in humanity to become for us the Savior, to save us from our sins. Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, one of the names of Jesus. He came in a way that could be experienced, in a way that could be touched, handled, heard. Emmanuel, God with us. So, because he loves us, he's chosen to save us. Now, the reason that God became a man is because he had to in order to save us. Here's where it gets theologically rich. I want you to follow. He became a man because that was the only way to save men. He became a man because that's the only way to save men. Christmas time happened because we needed to be saved and this was the only way it could happen. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death, meaning what sin earns you is death, right? A wage is what you earn. What sin earns you is death. Now, sin earned humanity as a whole physical death, but also spiritual death, or what the Bible calls the second death, which doesn't mean annihilation, that when you die, your spirit ceases to exist. It doesn't mean that. It means that you spend eternity apart from God. It's a bad place called hell. Did he say hell at Christmas time? Hell. It's a bad place called hell, eternal separation from God. The wages of sin is death, not only physical death, but something known as the second death, eternal separation from God. But God wants to save us. If what sin earns or if what sin earns us is death it costs a life then what could pay for that debt but a life right a substitutionary sacrifice if sin costs us our life what could pay for that but a life and that is why Jesus draped himself in humanity was that he could give his life because how could he give his life as God That's why he draped himself in humanity. You see, blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 17.11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. You see, the life is in the blood. If you drain your blood, you're going to die, right? I don't care what they put in you, monster, rock star, Red Bull, I don't care what they put in you. Without your blood, you're not going to live. The life is in the blood. Well, God is spirit. He had no blood to give. Of course, there were bulls and goats and those sacrifices of the Old Testament. What does the book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 tell us? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, those Old Testament sacrifices only made a temporary covering for sins. They didn't take away the penalty or the power of sin. They only made a temporary covering with concerns to the guilt of sin. But when John the Baptist saw Jesus on the banks of the Jordan River... He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And every attentive Jew said, huh, what? What do you mean? Takes away the sins. Because they understood a covering for sins. They hadn't experienced a taking away of sin. They would come and sacrifice a bull or a goat or a pigeon or whatever it was at the temple. They would go away and sin again and know, oh my goodness, i got to go back and sacrifice again. But in those Jewish years, heard those wonderful words, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This was revolutionary. This was profound. This is what they had been waiting for. Someone that would take away once and for all the power and the penalty of sin for them. And Jesus could only do it if he was draped in humanity. Because the wages of sin is death, so the payment is a life. And how could God give his life? By draping himself in humanity. It is a blood that atones for sin because the life is in the blood. How could he give his blood if he's a spirit? By draping himself in humanity. And that's the reason for the manger. Now it gets a little theologically deeper. Because according to the Old Testament, one who would redeem somebody had to be a relative, a member of the family by blood. A redeemer had to be a blood relative. A redeemer. Someone who would buy you back from a bad situation. For example, you could be bought out of slavery, but only by a blood relative. You could be redeemed out of slavery by a blood relative. If you made some bad financial decisions and you had a foreclosure on your property, a relative could redeem it for you, a blood relative. If you became a widow, and in those days that was real bad because they had no way to support themselves, a blood relative could become your redeemer and provide for you and take care of you. Throughout the Old Testament, the Jews understood a redeemer, a one who bought you back from a bad situation as having to be a blood relative. It's called the concept of a kinsman redeemer. The Old Testament term for redeemer in Hebrew is gael. And it has the idea of a kinsman redeemer. And God revealed himself as gael, redeemer to Israel. Isaiah 54, 5. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. They understood that a Redeemer had to be a blood relative. They didn't ever understand how God could be their Redeemer. Until the babe was born and laid in a manger. It was only then that this potent truth and picture had become complete in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. How could God be the Redeemer when it required a blood relationship? As John 1.14 says, And He became flesh and dwelt among us. A Savior and a manger. Without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But bulls and goats couldn't do it. Why? They're not related to us. Now, there's a great argument against evolution, huh? (laughs) The Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats could never fully redeem us from sin. Why? They're not related to us. The Redeemer's got to have a, a blood relationship to us. And so Jesus Christ became a man because animals cannot represent men. 
And so he became a man to represent us upon the cross and pay the price that we ourselves could never pay. And in order to do that, he had to be without sin. And so in order to be sinless, that man had to be God. And since God is the only sinless one and the only Savior, He Himself had to become a man. And so Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That God has given Himself. Let every other gift pale in comparison. God has given Himself a Savior in a manger. Do you remember when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22? And he went to Mount Moriah. Remember that? He went to Mount Moriah. That's where he was told to go by God. And he got up early in the morning and took Isaac up there. And and Isaac was carrying the wood and all the stuff to to build the altar and for a sacrifice. And Isaac looked at his daddy, Abraham, and said, Daddy, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, of course not having the heart or the wherewithal to tell him what he intended to do, said, My son Isaac, The Lord will provide himself the lamb. In the Hebrew. The Lord will provide himself the lamb. Now you remember they got up there. And Abraham went to carry out this sacrifice. And the angel of the Lord stopped them. And said now I know that your heart is fully mine. And Abraham looked over at the thicket. And stuck in the thicket was not a lamb but a ram. But Abraham had said, God will provide himself the lamb. What was provided on Mount Moriah that day was not a lamb, but a ram. Because the lamb was yet to come. And some years later, on the same bedrock of Mount Moriah, on a section now called Mount Calvary, God provided himself the lamb, the man, Jesus Christ. And it says in Genesis 22, 14, And Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. And the Lord has provided. I don't know what you're in need of this Christmas season. I don't know what it is you're looking for. But God provides it in the person of Jesus Christ if you'll just open your eyes and open your heart. If you'll just be willing to enter into a relationship with Him by repenting of your sins and asking Him to forgive you. If you'll just be willing to recognize who he is. Look what it says about him in the next verse as we finish. Verse 9 of Philippians 2. It says in verse 9 of Philippians 2, Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the summation of it all. That He is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the King. His name is above every name. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The question is when? You will either choose to bow your knee to Him and confess Him as Lord of your life in this life or you will bow your knee in judgment in the life to come. 
And if you reach that judgment for sins, it's too late, brothers and sisters. That's when you are sent into what is called the second death. The glory of Christmas is that nobody needs to go there. You can bow your knee to this king today. You can bow your knee to the incarnate God today. You can confess him as Lord today. That's what the wise men did. The wise men recognized. It says concerning them in Matthew 2.11. And they came to the house and saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. That's what the angels did at the incarnation. Luke 2. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. A Savior and a manger. What's Christmas going to be about for you this year? If you're here today and you've never received the gift of, the gift of salvation, I'm begging you not to miss it this Christmas season. Don't miss what God did for you. That he humbled himself to be born in a manger. And furthermore, that he humbled himself to die a brutal death upon the cross to pay the price for our lives that we might receive eternal life. If you're here today, don't leave without receiving that gift. I'll tell you how you receive it. You reach out for it. It's like any other gift. You just reach under that tree, but the tree is a cross. You reach out to that cross and you say, God, I'm a sinner. I know I am. I know I've blown it. I know I'm blowing it. I realize now that you are the Savior, Jesus. I'm asking you to save me. I don't understand everything this cat said today, but I know I need a Savior. I'm asking you to save me. I'll tell you, it's going to be the best Christmas of your life. It's going to be the best Christmas of your life. Other of you Christians, you just need to be a little less carnal now. Jesus draped himself in humanity to free us from the bondage of humanity. So let's endeavor to be a little more like him this Christmas season. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you so much for these wonderful, beautiful truths. And Lord, I just ask that you would extend the gift of salvation now to every man and woman here that not one would leave without recognizing you as Savior, without receiving that gift of having their sins taken away and the penalty taken away and the power taken away and to receive the gift of eternal life. Lord, come and extend that. Help men and women in this church today just call upon you in their hearts to say, I need you, save me, God. I know you're real. I know you're the Savior. And help all of us to return to you fully this year, Lord. We've been living for ourselves. We've got our own gigs, our own careers, our own agendas. It's not about us. Lord, we're sorry. I'm sorry that at Christmas time we make it all about us. It's all about you, Lord. We want to make it all about you right now. We want to enthrone you upon our praises. Help us to surrender those things that have us bound up to ourselves. Come and set us free to worship you, King Jesus. All the glory is yours. All the honor is yours. All the praise is yours. I want us to stand as we sing to the Lord. The prayer team will be up here if you need help this morning. Maybe you prayed that prayer. God, I want to be saved. Go tell one of them over here on your left. They'll help you get started in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you know this last year, man, it's been your world. 
time to make it about the Lord again, come get on your face. Communion is here to celebrate the gift of the incarnation. Let's press into the person of Jesus now.